0: Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. This is an Alpha Chat short edition. One guest, one interviewer, an Alpha Quip, an Alpha Bit. We haven't actually come up with the name yet. Our topic for today will be assessing the near term risks to the global economy presented by the U.S. elections and a slew of other activity. In Europe, China, elsewhere, throughout the world. I'm joined here for the second time this year by Tina Fordham, Chief Global Political Strategist at Citi. She's based in London, but is here in New York because she's been appointed to a new UN panel on the economic empowerment of women, along with Christine Lagarde of the IMF and a whole bunch of other bigwigs. Tina, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You know, when we spoke earlier this year, I feel like we were so innocent back then, you know, like it was before Brexit. It was when the possibility of a Trump presidency still seemed uh, remote. It seemed like Hillary Clinton was about to win the lottery in terms of opponents. Now all the polls have tightened up. How do you feel? <laughs> like at the end of the summer, how do you feel? Anxious. Anxious? This is the worst part of the
1: curve for a political analyst, even one like me, who isn't really trying to, to forecast so much as to is to talk about the underlying structural trends and scenarios. But what we said about Brexit was that it wasn't a tail risk, and we put a 40% probability. Now, political probabilities aren't like blackjack. 40% probability events happen all the time. One question for for investors and for observers is, since Brexit happened, does that mean that that, that Trump is more likely – I wouldn't really put it that way but we are in a world where political risks in advanced economies and sort of non-standard, non-mainstream outcomes are very, very possible if not probable.
0: Are you surprised by the amount of denial uh, both in the case of Brexit certainly but even right now with the polls showing that this is actually a pretty close race? But a lot of commentators, a lot of what you might call the coastal elites, to be simplistic about it, uh, still thinking that a Trump presidency uh, is like this kind of uh, unthinkable. As, as one, yeah, as one yes. as one uh, writer put it, a category error. Like it wouldn't happen. You know.
1: Well, the, it, it's an important question that really comes down to your psychology, I think, and to probably to sense of risk aversion. I mean, we we all now tend to live in bubbles. Uh, in terms of what we what we read or what we watch or who's on our Twitter feed or Facebook feed, so we don't have a lot of interaction with those people who are in the other camp, uh, even less than we did before. In fact, there's evidence that says that people have physically moved in this country so that Democrats live near Democrats, Republicans near live near Republicans. So we don't have a sense of of how others are feeling, and that actually exacerbates this problem.
0: Uh, before we get into the actual positions of each of the candidates and what risks those might represent for the rest of the world for the global economy. Uh, I want to backtrack a bit. Uh, you're here in New York for this UN panel. I have a question about women in positions of national leadership and I guess leadership at one of the multilaterals in the case of Christine Lagarde. If Hillary Clinton does win, um, we'll be in a world where um, the president of the United States, prime minister of the UK, chancellor of Germany, head of the IMF – and U.S. Fed and the leader of the world's most important central bank, leader yes. of the Fed, are all women. Um, I, I guess my question is: To what extent does that have an impact? Does the mere fact of a woman in a position of leadership like that have an impact on a society with um, that still has quite a quite a bit of gender imbalance, which is pretty much all societies, I guess, right? Certainly that applies to the U.S. To what extent can that, on its own, help rectify the situation? Or does it really depend on who the specific woman is and how she ends up performing?
1: Fascinating question. Um, it, it, is, it will be remarkable if we have that much female leadership in some of the world's most powerful positions. Uh, although I always think about the Onion headline after President Obama was elected, which said, uh, world's worst job given to black men. Um, (laughs) These are, uh, you know, is it
0: a poison chalice, (laughs) right? right. You know,
1: these are also going to be incredibly difficult jobs. The demonstration effect, the role model effect, I think, is powerful. Women, you know, I live in the UK. I've got two little girls. They see... Uh, Theresa May is prime minister and think nothing of it. And, you know, they see me charging around doing, doing all kinds of things. So they don't really have the a, a sense of, of barriers, at least not at their young age. But there's something important, too. I, I actually think um, that uh, Justin Trudeau, who we spoke about, President Obama in his interview, where he talked about being a feminist. One of the things in the UN panel that we're working on a lot is the idea that men and women have to work together. And that uh, gender inequality uh, also hurts men. So I think this is an agenda which uh, has got to transcend just what's good for women. To answer your question more directly, though, from a policy perspective, I think it's difficult for female leaders um, to take on the women's agenda. In the same way, it's been very difficult for President Obama to to really take on, on the race issues. Everybody's watching.
0: Right. That's a great point. Let's talk about each of the two candidates uh, and their platforms from the standpoint of how they'll affect the global political economy, right? Uh, We'll start with Trump. Uh, Last week, we had Dan Dresner on the show. He's a political scientist. Um, He made the point that although there aren't any identifiable Trump positions because he changes his mind so often, he does have a worldview. And that worldview is that everything is zero sum. If we win, it means somebody else Lost something, which is sort of antagonistic or anathema to the idea that things like trade, immigration can all be positive sum, right? That if we all coordinate together, right, if countries you know get along and if they in- interact with each other in terms of commerce and in setting peace deals and in climate change, everybody can win. Well,
1: that's for sissies.
0: That's for sissies,
1: right? I don't think Trump's motto is "a rising tide lifts all boats." It's interesting talking to investors, some of them uh, and uh, you know take comfort in the fact that we have institutions in this country that actually the presidency is, is not as strong as it is in uh, in other places that that Congress is important. But if you have a Trump presidency, you're likely to have a Republican sweep in Congress. And then it becomes an issue of to what extent Trump's policies will get pushed back from from Paul Ryan and from the Tea Party, which has been against expansionary fiscal policy. So I think markets are misreading Trump. I think the biggest impact a Trump presidency would have would be on trade, which you talked about, very good paper just out from the Peterson Institute that that looks at this more closely, and on security uh, because of that unpredictability factor.
0: Right. Yeah. And we'll, we'll put a link to the uh, Peterson Institute paper on the show notes. Um, it's something that's uh, interesting about all this, too, is that we're finally starting to get a lot of estimates of what just might happen if Trump were to be president. So you mentioned Peterson, but also the Tax Foundation has put out a new estimate for what his tax plan might do, even though, again, there's a lot of uncertainty there a lot of political analysts including some of your colleagues at city uh, have said that markets aren't pricing in correctly the very real possibility of a Trump presidency right how should they be thinking about that risk
1: well, I mean the the short-term market reaction is uh, is one thing. I mean for Brexit, it was dramatic and it was a, a stunning experience when that no vote came in, uh, the leave vote came in. Even though everybody knew it was a, a, a very reasonable prospect, it was still a shock. For for yeah. Trump, I think we're kind of maybe overcorrecting um, a lot of investors assuming that a Trump victory is, is likely because the polls got it wrong the, the last time. How should we think about it? Um, I think that policies toward companies could be quite different um, if one of the promises that Trump makes good on is offshoring and, and penalizing companies. Um, it's a fairly small number of companies that would be affected by this.
0: I, I don't even know like where we'd begin to well, start I pricing mean, this and stuff the tre- in. And
1: the Treasury is responsible for a mm. lot of these things. And and if. Trump does become president, he would also, you know, quickly have to come to grips with the fact that he wouldn't be ruling by fiat, um, that, you know, the different institutions do make uh, an awful lot of policies and that unwinding uh, these trade agreements, unscrambling the egg, as it were, as we're seeing right now with Brexit is not, it's not so straightforward. Other policies of his are pretty mainstream. Right. So, you know, it would be um, certainly a a mixed bag. But I sense a real um, disconnect between the way U.S. investors are looking at this and global investors uh, who I spent most of my time talking to, non-U.S., who are baffled.
0: More frightened than U.S. investors are. Yes.
1: I mean, everyone understands that Hillary Clinton represents the status quo, but of course, it's that very fact that's hurting her. Right. Um, The fact that she is so well known. Right. um, And uh, represents the establishment, you know, if not a political dynasty, as some have said.
0: All right. Let's talk a little bit about Hillary Clinton. Uh, As you mentioned, she's kind of a technocratic centrist, uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy. Um, She's maybe a little bit more comfortable with uh, the use of force than Barack Obama is. Uh, she at least has pushed to be more aggressive in different parts of the world, you know, the South China Sea, Syria, Libya. She's always been a little bit more aggressive in that regard. But when it comes to economic policy, yeah, she's gone back on TPP. She said that she won't support TPP now or if she's president or ever, essentially. Yeah. Um, TTIP. The trade deal that the U.S. was trying to hash out with Europe looks like it's just about dead. Well, the Germans right? are also – The Germans are basically saying it's done.
1: Ahead of their elections next year.
0: Exactly. Yes. Um, so that's unlikely. So in terms of how she would shake things up, it doesn't look like a whole lot would change when it comes to foreign economic policy. What do you think?
1: Or and economic policy, no. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton is is more hawkish, uh, I think, than uh, Barack Obama. She would take us back to the first George Bush era, which uh, many in my world, in the foreign policy world, consider kind of a golden age for foreign policy, actually. On economic policy, she's clearly been pulled to the left by, by Sanders and by the Elizabeth Warren Democrats, But again, you know, as much as we are all, you know, political junkies love um, sifting through these kinds of positions, there's a wider phenomenon here about uh, deglobalization, a backlash to globalization and and a question not just about the economic and trade aspects but about identity, Mm -hmm. right? What What does it mean to be American? What does it mean to make America great again? What does it mean to be British, European? All of these things are being questioned in a way that I think political leaders are completely unprepared for.
0: Yeah, so when I asked the question, I said foreign economic policy, and you interpreted it as foreign and economic policy. So yes. your answer was even more comprehensive oh. uh, than I anticipated. It was perfect. So uh, let's do a speed round now. I'm just going to name a part of the world, okay, and you tell me. This is
1: a Rorschach test exactly. for foreign policy. it might be. Experience. It depends on how it goes.
0: Exactly. Uh, and tell us like whether or not there's anything going on uh, in that country or in that region uh, that's posing a near-term risk uh, to the global political economy, and how we should think about it. Okay, sounds dangerous. No, this is going to be fun. <laughs> this is going to be fun. And by the way, you can say no near-term risk. That's a, that's a, an option as well. All right, uh, go to jail. <laughs> do not pass go. Okay, exactly. Um, okay, uh, China. Waiting to see if Trump wins. Waiting to see if Trump wins. And let's say Trump does win. Uh, cautious
1: and uh, probably going to keep augmenting those little, little islands in the South China Sea uh, on the assumption that uh, Trump is not going to be very enthusiastic about that U.S. security umbrella with, with uh, Japan and South Korea.
0: OK. Let's say the BRICS.
1: Emerging markets – Following a Trump presidency,
0: yeah, yes, yeah. In other words, what's happening there that we should think about in terms of the risk? Very, very
1: uh, to vulnerable the to the economy. U.S. political cycle and to commodities prices, mm-hmm. right? So, Russian Duma elections passed last weekend without a without a, a whimper. Um, you know, status quo there, but lower oil prices and sanctions still hurting the Russian economy. Uh, Brazil having difficulties following Dilma's departure, but, but all of them vulnerable to um, dollar strengthening uh, and to the commodity cycle in a big, yeah. big way.
0: OPEC Secretary General yesterday saying that um, OPEC was trying to agree to a one-year deal um, on slowing production uh, and holding prices steady or raising them. Uh, what do you think?
1: I think we've heard that song <laughs> a before. Times before, yes. Is it
0: just too hard at this point for these countries to coordinate? Given that some countries, for instance, like Iran, are basically psyched to get some market share in the oil market because they've been frozen out of it for so long.
1: Many many dissertations written about cheating in cartels. So um, this is not a new story. And OPEC's ability to kind of have discipline around these agreements is is uh, not improving.
0: Okay. Uh, the. Almost unbearably deep recessions uh, in Russia and Brazil. Some talk that they might be bottoming out. Uh, what do you think? Is the outlook there uh, any better or at least not any worse?
1: Uh, that is a tough call for me. I'm, I'm looking very much at, at what happens with Trump because they will certainly get hit hard from a markets and a currency perspective mm-hmm. uh, on the back of a Trump victory.
0: This is, I mean, this is kind of impressive that for so many of these countries, the outcome of the U.S. election, I mean, is a huge deal in terms of how they're going to react and like what their impact is going to be on the rest of the world. And so
1: what's really important throughout this whole conversation is how political risks have moved to the advanced economies after having been concentrated in EM for so long and have, uh, you know, multiple layers of effects.
0: Mm hmm. In Europe, by the way, there are also a few other sort of populist backlashes going on besides Brexit and besides the AFD in Germany, um, Marine Le Pen in France, uh, certainly uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary, um, and there's probably a few others. Are things as fragile or as unstable there as they have been in years uh, or do you think this is something uh, that will blow over if, say, Trump is not elected and if the fallout from Brexit isn't too bad?
1: Well, what's really driving the instability, uh, political instability in the short to medium term in Europe is the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Somebody asked me the other day, when, when is this going to go away? And I, I had to stop myself from laughing because uh, you know, the, the refugee crisis, 60 million forcibly displaced people in the world, the highest number since World War II, is a culmination of 20 years of a combination of governance, failures, foreign policy failures, and all kinds of other factors. That number doesn't even include economic migrants, right? These people are coming from the Horn of Africa, Afghanistan, the Balkans, Iraq, all the places where there have been conflicts in, in the, over the last 20 years. Um, thanks to GPS and smartphones, they can now uh, make their way to Europe. The numbers have slowed somewhat. But the reason I bring it up in the context of, of European political risks is that we have a Hungarian referendum on on uh, the refugee quotas that Merkel has proposed. Merkel withstood seven unpopular bailouts that the, the German Bundestag did not want to approve, that the public disapproved of, and saw her approval ratings sink like a stone in the months after the refugee crisis. So the refugee crisis has the potential, in my view, to, to break Europe in a way that the euro crisis uh, didn't. That's because you've got talk of unelected you know, technocrats, Mario Draghi, whatever it takes, as the economic backstop. Merkel is the political backstop for Europe. She's still likely to go on to a fourth term, but these days we can't take anything for granted.
0: Yeah. I, I spent a week in Berlin earlier this summer, uh, about a month ago, and uh, a very common sentiment there, of all, almost from everybody I spoke to, is that the problem with the refugee crisis wasn't Just the fact of the numbers, right? It wasn't just that there were so many refugees coming in. It was that Merkel hadn't done a good enough job of explaining exactly how the problem would be solved. In other words, exactly how Germany would absorb all of these people. In some cases, uh, there was an issue there that the German press just doesn't go after the chancellor the way that like the American press would go after the president, certainly the UK press would go after the prime minister. uh, And so she hadn't felt the need to explain herself. But there was massive frustration at just the lack of a plan. How much do you think that would help both in Germany, but also just throughout Europe in terms of explaining to people, hey, listen, you know, we're compassionate, we get that immigration is something that we want in terms of helping refugees out. This is a humanitarian issue, but- we need a plan for how this is actually going to work.
1: I guess I think that criticism is a bit tough on Merkel because she responded to what was literally a tide of human misery. Yeah. Um, and she responded uh, in a way that um, uh, helped kind of um, blunt the immediate crisis. Should there have been more planning? Possibly. But, you know, the the, the scale of the numbers was huge. Where she's getting criticism, of course, is from within her own party, uh, and we've seen the alternative for Deutschland do well on the back of this. But let's remember, in Germany, it's a very different political landscape. Where the refugee crisis could have a bigger impact is Austria, the Netherlands, which have elections next year, Uh, and again, France, where we come back to how... Perceptions uh, about refugee flows are merging with concerns about terrorism and, and adding to this globalization backlash and this kind of uh, – these identity issues that I talked about, this sense of anxiety. And by the way, this is while you know, growth has returned and in, in much of Europe, unemployment, um, if not returned to, to pre-crisis levels, certainly doing much better. So we mustn't think about these, these developments as purely, um, purely
0: economic in origin. Tina Fordham, Chief Global Political Analyst at City. You know what? I hope that before the next time you come talk to us uh, that the news just gets better throughout, around the world. It got so much worse in between our two conversations this year.
1: It really did, didn't it? Brexit was a, was a watershed, and um, the, uh, the other developments, the best we can hope for is is muddling through.
0: Yeah, muddling through doesn't sound so bad right about now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's all the time we have left for today's show. Thanks for listening. Send us an email at alphachat at ft.com to give us feedback or you can call us at 917-551-5012. That is a U.S. number, so plus one for the country code if you're an overseas listener. Please leave a review and rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find us. And also, you can find show notes and links to everything we've just discussed at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Finally, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Tina Fordham is on Twitter at Tina Fordham one, the number one. Amy Keene produces and edits this podcast. She herself is absolutely no threat whatsoever to the global political economy, not because she's Canadian but because she's amazing. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. And we'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat.